Hey everyone, it's Andy. I just wanted to quickly warn everyone listening that this episode is quite a bit more gruesome and, well, frankly, messed up than other episodes. I've heard that some people listen to the show with their kids or show the podcast to their students, which is just awesome to hear, but if that's the case, or if you're just a bit squeamish about gore or other dark topics in general, you might want to skip this one, because after all, this is a history podcast and I can't just omit the parts of history that are uncomfortable. Just a warning, let's continue. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we saw the Ashantahene Osebonso declare war to capture a group of rebellious noblemen who sought refuge in the Fonti Confederacy. In the end, Osebonso succeeded in defeating the Fonti army, conquering their land, extracting oaths of submission from the Fonti elites, and even successfully besieged a British fort. However, he failed to capture one of the rebellious nobles, marking his campaign, at least in his mind, a haunting failure. This episode, Osebonso will try to right the failures of his last campaign, and maintain the successes of his earlier reign. As the fight for sovereignty over the coast is far from over, nor is it the only battle you'll face. Season 3, Episode 14, Gyaman Must Pay. One day, in late 1807, Osebonso emerged from his home, a tired man. He had been kept awake by an imagined argument between the two royal swords in the room across from him. The sword, which represented the authority of the Ashanti ancestors and royal dynasty, felt that Osebonso had spent too much time dedicated to pleasing the sword of the king, taking it on his conquest of the Fonti, and using it to consecrate his capture of the coast. Meanwhile, he had disrespected the sword of the dynasty by failing to capture the criminals responsible for defiling Ashanti graves and therefore failing to defend the honor of the ancestors. While the sword of the king tried to make a case for itself, it was clear to Osebonso who won the argument. Osebonso, at the end of the sleepless night, was convinced by this epiphanic debate that the problems which the Asante faced were his fault. He had spent too much time and effort pursuing glory and ego, and had neglected his responsibility as the protector of Ashanti honor. This would not and could not happen again. However, at least in the meantime, Osebonso had to first deal with the aftermath of his victory. First, despite the war's status as a victory overall, the 1806 war had illuminated numerous flaws in Ashanti military doctrine. Most notably, while the Ashanti had ultimately succeeded in extracting a surrender when they besieged the British Fort William, The lack of experience in siege warfare on the Ashanti's part was evident. Attempts to scale the walls or burn the fort's gate proved not only unsuccessful during the battle, but also extremely costly in lives. Not to mention that the biggest failure of the conflict, the gravedigger's escape from the Ashanti's hands, occurred in part because of the Ashanti's failure to capture Fort William. Sure, they had eventually won the siege from the British running out of supply, but the grave-digging rebel leader had managed to slip out of the fort while Osebonso and the British commander negotiated terms of surrender. So, had the Ashanti been able to capture the fort conventionally, they almost certainly would have caught the fugitive rebel, and Osebonso's victory would have not been tainted by his escape. So, Osebonso knew that, in the future, improved siege tactics were a necessity. But, in order for his officers to improve their siege tactics, they would need, you know, something to besiege. Practice makes perfect, after all. So, where would the Ashanti army conduct practice sieges? Well, not on European forts, because that could potentially lead to diplomatic misunderstanding if the Europeans, or other nearby people, saw the practice siege without knowing of its intention and believed that war was imminent. Instead, he decided to build a European-style fort of his own. He summoned a group of Ashanti engineers and asked them to reverse-engineer the design of the largest European coastal fort, Elmina Castle, and build a simulacrum in Kumasi. Progress started on this castle, called the Abandan, or Stone House, in 1808. The fort was designed to resemble European fortifications down to the last detail, including iron cannons mounted on the walls and the same mortaring techniques. 
While the full structure wouldn't be complete until around 12 years later, sections of the fort were already constructed by 1810, allowing for Ashanti officers to begin practicing mock sieges and developing new strategies on how to capture forts. If you're interested in knowing how the Ashanti were able to so accurately and quickly reconstruct a fort of such magnitude, as well as how the empire's buildings, roads, and bridges were built, then you'll probably enjoy our latest premium episode, which focuses on the structural, civil, and military engineering of the Ashanti Empire. Like all premium episodes, it can be found on our Patreon. Now, I've recently undergone a pretty big shakeup in my life, involving both employment and education, meaning that continuing to produce this show is becoming more demanding than it's ever been before. So, if you'd like to support the show, or if you'd just like to learn more about Ashanti engineering or any of the other topics our premium episodes have focused on, please go ahead and support us on patreon.com slash historyofafrica. And to those already supporting us, thank you. I can confidently say that without your support, the show couldn't have gone this far, so it means a lot. Anyways, back to the show. Osebonto's officers would have little time to conduct mock sieges, though. This is because, just as quickly as peace had arrived, war was once again brewing on the southern coast. Despite Osebonso's last conquest of the Fonti being a military success, I'd like to immediately make clear that the Fonti were not suddenly loyal subjects of the Ashanti Empire. I mean, how could they be? Sure, the Fonti had been defeated out of Ura, and their country had been occupied, but most of its citizens lived on. Remember, these are the same Fonti who had such enmity for the Ashanti that they refused to even accept diplomats unless they came in the form of hostages. And that was before the bloody catastrophe of 1806 had inflamed Fonti disdain for the Ashantis even further. And in an environment like that, Osebonso had to be crazy to try to directly annex the Fonti into the Ashanti Empire and appoint Amanhene as their new leader. So, he allowed the Fonti Parliament and the King of Makassim to remain the Fonti's leaders, so long as they pledged a vassal status to the Ashantahene. Now, at the start of 1808, the Fonti were simply in such a bad position that they had no choice but to nod their heads and act like loyal Ashanti vassals. Their armies had been routed, their towns and cities stripped of valuables, thousands of their people had been taken into slavery, and garrisons of Ashanti soldiers still occupied several crucial points throughout Fontimon. But within just a couple years, the Fonti miraculously recovered from their weak position. New generations of boys became men with each passing day, and enlisted into the Asafo militia companies that formed the base of the Fonti military. The sheer hatred for the concept of submission to the despised Ashanti further drove recruitment to sky-high levels. By 1809, so soon after their catastrophic defeat at Abura, the Fonti once again had a military of both respectable size and armament, and a new Trafohene, or leader of all Asafo companies, was elected the same year. Impressively, just a couple years out after their defeat at the hands of the Ashanti, the Asafo were once again ready to try their luck in a fight. Luckily for the Fonti, Ashanti garrisons on the coast were severely depleted. Soon after the occupation began in 1807, a smallpox epidemic broke out among the invading Ashanti, forcing much of the army to return home while many more perished of the disease. Believing themselves ready to initiate a rebellion, the Asafo companies surrounded Elmina, a town on the coast and the site of the infamous Elmina Castle. For centuries, Elmina has been a subject to a complex relationship to the Fonti Confederacy. Elmina was, in theory, a province of the Fonti, but by playing the Fonti and nearby Dutch merchants at the castle off each other, as well as occasionally and recently allying themselves with the Ashanti, residents had managed to attain a de facto independence from all sides. With Fonti morale still damaged from their defeat at the hands of the Ashanti, the Chwafohene decided that if there's one thing the Fonti could use right now, it was a victory to boost their spirits. Capturing Almina would not only bolster Fonti morale, though, it would also serve as a great first step in reasserting Fonti authority on the coast and eliminate an important Ashanti ally. 
As the Asafo company began their assault on Almina, however, it became very clear that something was different about the Fonti this time. While they had the numbers and arms, it was apparent that the new Fonti militias were a sad sight compared to their predecessors. And this isn't too surprising. Yes, while the new recruits into the Asafos were valuable in filling the Fonti ranks, they were no replacement for the numerous experienced officers and veterans who the Ashanti killed or enslaved at the Battle of Abura. Despite resembling more of an armed and experienced mob than an army, the Fonti forces still managed to score a victory at Almina. The local forces were quickly subsumed, and the city's Dutch garrison was forced to flee behind the castle walls. Unlike the Ashanti, the remaining Fonti officers did have previous experience besieging European castles, having already successfully captured Elmina during their war with Osequajo several decades ago. Knowing that the Dutch walls were too high and too thick to scale or break through, the Fonti instead opted to camp outside the walls and wait for the Dutch to run out of supplies, the same tactic that had worked in the previous siege of Elmina. The Dutch, desperately lacking supplies even from the very start of the siege, sent a message desperately requesting relief from their ally, Osebonso. At this point, Fonti leadership had to be well aware that another Ashanti intervention was no longer a matter of if, but when. In 1811, rumors circulated that an Ashanti army was already mobilizing in the north to invade Fonti territory, along with their Ga allies in Accra. These rumors were true, by the way. So to give themselves a fighting chance, the Fonti decided to launch a preemptive attack against Accra, hoping to knock the smaller party out of the war early. This attack failed. The Fonti, apparently, had underestimated the speed of Ashanti mobilization. As the Fonti advanced on Accra, which they expected to be lightly defended, they soon came face-to-face with a large Ashanti army. Osebonso and the Ashanti Minister for War, or Kontihene, had seen the preemptive attack coming, and had prepared ahead of time to help the Ga defend the city. Meanwhile, with most of the Fonti Asafo units tied down in Accra, another Ashanti army was able to march unopposed to Almina, relieving the Dutch from their siege. After a brief clash at Accra, the Ashanti army, led by Kontihene Apiadunka, repelled the undisciplined and inexperienced Fonti Asafo. However, if Osebonso and the Ashantis had believed that the Fonti hadn't learned anything from their defeat in 1806, they were dead wrong. Rather than consolidating together for a pitched battle like they had at Abura, the Asafo companies instead scattered throughout Fonti territory after their defeat. They did not disband, though, and instead continued to fight against the Ashanti in a very different manner. The Chwafohene changed his strategy, and instead opted to fight a campaign of asymmetric or guerrilla warfare. Fonti soldiers hid in the forests, where they would ambush Ashanti patrols and supply lines before quickly retreating into the thick brush. In urban areas, the militiamen exchanged their uniform for civilian clothing, blended into the local population, and launched sneak attacks before retreating back into the crowds. Compared to the relatively easy mop-up campaign that had followed Abora just a few years prior, this second invasion of the Fonti was much more taxing thanks to the Trafohene's ingenious execution of guerrilla warfare. At first, the occupying Ashanti army continued to hold an advantage over the insurgents, keeping their enemies constantly on the defensive. However, after three brutal and taxing years of fighting, the tides began to turn. Inspired by the Fonti's success at keeping up the fight, the exiled Achim and Denshira kings urged their own subjects to rise in revolt against the Ashanti, and return to their territories to lead the rebellions themselves. By 1815, the southeastern region of Ashanti influence was in a state of absolute chaos, with Ashanti sovereignty evaporating day by day. The Ashanti position was made even worse by yet another smallpox outbreak in their ranks. As the war expanded and its casualty numbers and costs continued to rise, Ashanti frustrations also grew. 
Namely, many within the Ashanti military were confused as to how the Fonti, previously so thoroughly defeated, with so many of their weapon caches seized, could have possibly re-equipped an army so quickly. Sure, domestic gun manufacturers existed all over Ghana, but the Fonti economy was nowhere near large enough to produce such an impressive supply of firearms. It's almost as if someone from outside had been selling them weapons. Almost immediately, one suspect stood out from the others. The British. The British, while theoretically being neutral and having pledged subservience to the Ashanti, possessed deep diplomatic ties with the Fonti. In previous decades, nobody would have batted an eye at the British selling Fonti weapons, as pretty much all European mercantile companies sold to every African kingdom in the region. But after the 1806 war, things had changed. The Ashanti had assumed that, by pledging subservience and allegiance, the European merchants on the coast agreed to treat the Ashanti as exclusive partners in the firearms trade. And, in the case of the Dutch and Danish, this expectation had been fulfilled. So, when reports began to emerge of captured Fonti soldiers carrying British rifles, the Ashanti military leadership was very unhappy. Anglo-Ashanti hostility came to a head in 1814, when an Ashanti army confronted the governor of the Company of African Merchants in a coastal town of Winneba, home of a British fortress by the same name. While it's not clear how exactly fighting first broke out, or what either side sought to gain from the encounter, fighting broke out regardless. The British, likely aware of stories of the Battle of Anamabo, were confident that the Ashanti lacked the capability to quickly capture forts. While supplied in Fort Winneba, they could certainly hold out long enough to wait for reinforcements. So, I imagine the governor was terrified when the Ashanti outside showcased just how much their siege tactics had improved in the last seven years. Showcasing well-coordinated and disciplined attacks, the Ashanti managed to keep the fort's defenders under constant pressure. These non-committal, probing attacks baited the fort's garrison into consuming high quantities of gunpowder. If the defenders didn't bite, the Ashanti pushed closer and closer to the walls until the British began to open fire before they retreated. After hours of aimlessly returning fire at the Ashanti's mobile and well-coordinated attacks, the British gunpowder stores ran dry, allowing the Ashanti to close in and begin scaling the walls with little resistance. Crucially, there was no surrender at Winneba. The fort was captured and the governor inside was executed. The message that this battle sent to the British was understood loud and clear. Selling weapons to the Fonti was a bad idea, and it became British policy to avoid selling to anybody but the Ashanti. As the brutal asymmetric fighting continued into 1815 and 1816, Fonti weapons and ammunition supplies began to deplete. Exhausted and outatrited by their Ashanti enemies, the Fonti were once again forced to agree to a humiliating vassalage. With the Fonti now defeated, the Ashanti now turned their full might onto the Achim and Denshira, who, now outnumbered by a significant margin, were crushed with ease. The rebellious kings were executed, and new, more subservient kings were appointed in their place under the strict supervision of Ashanti Amanhenes. These wars, which went down in history as the Ga-Afanti War and the ashanti Achem War, or sometimes the ashanti Aquapim War, were concluded. Even the British, defeated by the Ashanti in battle twice now, were once again forced to the table to sign a treaty with the Ashanti. The 1817 Anglo-Ashanti Treaty, signed by Ose Bonso and a representative of the British Company of African Merchants, settled many issues of disagreement between the kingdom and company. The British admitted fault in the previous incidents at Winneba and Anamabo, and formally apologized for any misgivings between the two kingdoms. Additionally, the British resolved the question of criminal fugitives, which had proved so important in provoking the battle at Anamabo in the first place, pledging to extradite any fugitive criminals to the Ashanti. The governor-in-chief reserves to himself the right of punishing any subject of Ashanti guilty of secondary offenses, 
But in case of any crime of magnitude, he will send the offender to the king, to be dealt with according to the laws of his country. Finally, and most importantly, they also confirmed their commitment to free passage for Ashanti merchants, and once again conceded Ashanti sovereignty over the British coastal forts, and acknowledged the Fonti's status as a subject of the Ashanti. The treaty stipulated, though, that the Fonti would remain as a dependent but separate nation from the Ashanti, and that the British were allowed to continue trading with this dependent Fonti state, though only during periods of peace. But somehow, even after two wars with the Fonti, and the ink still wet on multiple peace agreements with his foes, Osebonso's tumultuous foreign policy didn't end here. All the way on the other side of the Ashanti Empire, a new conflict was brewing. The Ashanti's oldest enemies, the Dorma, will once again face the Ashanti in battle. So, what exactly has been going on with the Dorma since we last saw them nine episodes ago? Last time we saw the Dorma, that is, the Akan Kingdom just to the west of Kumasi, they had killed the king of Kwaman, Obiri Yaboa, in battle, only to be defeated soon after by who else but Yaboa's nephew, a somewhat important guy by the name of Osetutu. But since then, the Dorma have been, well, dormant. Huh. But for real, they've been quiet for a while. Well, until today, the Dorma have remained the only Akan polity to remain completely independent of the Ashanti. They've sent them the occasional tribute payment, but no more. In fact, not only have they been surviving Ashanti ambitions, they've been doing very well, even expanding into somewhat of an empire of their own. You see, after Opokuware's conquest of the Bono State all the way back in, like, what, episode 6? That northwestern region that sits just outside of Ashanti influence has been going through a whole lot of change. Just outside the reach of Ashanti frontiers, there existed one final unconquered major Bono city, the trade hub of Bonduku. Bonduku was the third largest Akan city, surpassed in 1811 by only Kumasi and Mankasim in population. And sometime in the early 18th century, the Dorma under the leadership of Dorma Hene Tandate expanded north, eventually enveloping Bonduku and its neighboring regions, populated by the Muslim Mande-speaking ethnic group, Najula. Well, they were sort of an ethnic group, sort of an economic class, it's complicated, definitely future podcast season material. Anyways, perhaps to prevent rebellion, Tandate did not frame this campaign as a conquest by the Dorma, but rather as an integration of multiple ethnic groups into a shared state. Throughout its history, this state, known as Gyaman, would remain overtly multi-ethnic, with Dorma, Bono, Jula, as well as the empire's minority Guang populations, each holding various positions of power throughout the kingdom's existence. Through the 18th century, Gyaman gradually solidified itself as a great power on the border of the northwest forest and northern savannah regions. While the empire's permanent population, barely greater than 200,000, was dwarfed by their Ashanti neighbors, the Gyaman kingdom used its strategically important position as a trade route between the Ashanti and Sahelian kingdoms to wield considerable economic power, far more substantial than its small size would normally allow. Now, Gyaman had clashed a couple of times in small skirmishes with the Ashanti before, but never had the Gyaman fought a full-fledged war against their enemies to the south. The origins of the coming conflict between the Ashanti and Gyaman date back to around 1810, just as tensions were also heating up in the south. That year, a new Gyaman Hene rose to the throne, a man named Kwajo Adinkra. Those of you subscribed to our Patreon might remember that name as the guy falsely attributed as the origin of Adinkra symbols, while in reality the name is almost certainly a coincidence. Adinkra was notoriously a non-ambitious king. He was content to rule the Yaman, as many kings before him had, as a prosperous secondary power that didn't challenge Ashanti dominance. 
In fact, Gyaman kings had regularly paid the Ashantahane tribute since the rule of Ose Kwajo, and Kwajo Adinkra was perfectly content with this situation. But while Adinkra was content to rule an unambitious secondary power, his sister, of all people, was definitely not. Going by the name Amatamiya, Adinkra's sister was a polar opposite of her brother. While he had a reputation for being easygoing, if a little socially awkward, Tamiya was a confident speaker and known for dominating any social gathering she partook in. Notably, she was also notoriously ambitious, not wanting to settle for maintaining the status quo, but desiring to advance her and her kingdom's power further than ever before. And due to this strong personality, many of the elites of Gyaman viewed the strong-willed Amatamiya, and not her brother, as the true power behind the Gyaman stool. Speaking of the Gyaman stool, it's going to play a pretty big role in our story. Like every other Akan kingdom or polity, Yaman royal power was encapsulated by a wooden chair, or stool. The sole exception to this is, of course, the Ashanti, who, in a symbol of their supremacy among Akan states, used a stool coated in gold. At Tamiya's urging, and against her brother's wishes, the royal family of Gyaman hired a team of artisans to gild the Gyaman royal stool in 24 karat gold. While this may seem to us like a mere change in aesthetics, the symbolism behind this change was as overt as it gets. Coating the Gyaman stool in gold was a diplomatic middle finger to the Ashanti. It was, essentially, an announcement that the stool of Gyaman deserved the same respect and commanded the same power as their neighbors, and that the Ashanti were not without equals. It also implied that, as an equal, Gyaman would not continue to pay tribute. Upon hearing this news, Osebonso was infuriated. Not only was the Gyaman monarchy insulting him and his power, they were insulting the Golden Stool itself, the sacred symbol and home of the spirits of the Ashanti ancestors. Ose Bonso, of course, had pledged to protect the honor of these Ashanti ancestors. This could not stand. The Ashantehene debated his next move. While Tamiya's gilding of the Gyaman Stool was certainly provocational, the Ashantehene was apprehensive about the idea of attacking a kingdom that had, until recently, not only provided the Ashanti with tribute, but a stable, friendly northwestern frontier. So, rather than immediately declaring war, Bonso decided instead to opt for diplomacy. He and an aide traveled to Bonduku to speak with the Gyaman Hene. When they arrived in 1818 and confronted Adinkra, alone in his palace, he sheepishly surrendered the Gyaman's duel to the Ashanti envoy. Satisfied, Bonso and his aide returned to Kumasi. Later that day, Tamiya returned to the Gyaman palace and, enraged at her brother's capitulation, arranged for the construction of a new Gyaman golden stool. When word arrived of the crafting of a new golden stool in Gyaman, Ose Bonso, thoroughly fed up with the Gyaman royalty, sent yet another envoy to Bonduku. This time, Tamiya was present at the Gyaman palace. When the Ashanti envoy demanded she surrender the golden stool and pay a punitive indemnity of gold for the trouble she had caused, Tamiya laughed at the diplomats and responded with some strong language. You impotent tortoise. If it's gold you want, perhaps I can vomit some up for you, or maybe shit it out in your king's hands. Adinkra, always non-confrontational and also present at the meeting, sat idly by in the corner. At one point, the Ashanti envoy, attempting to convince Tamiya to give in, noted that her brother had already surrendered the stool not so long ago, so why couldn't she do the same? Tamiya responded by lashing out at her brother. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame Stories to find out. 
Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. God, despite his wisdom, made a mistake when he created myself and my brother. For my cowardly and terrified brother, he should have been given the genitals of a woman. But I am fierce in spirit and freedom, ardent and manly. What a terrible mistake which God has tasked us to correct with our own human skill. I swear... I swear to be resolute. I swear to my brother, who sits silently in the corner, that I will amputate his genitalia and mount it to the top of my parasol, so that your Ashanti king will see it and understand it as a declaration of war. We will give all that we have to fight the Ashanti. This is what the men of Gyaman are like. Well, uh, you can't get a much stronger response than that. <laughs> I mean, what do you even say to something like that? Apparently, the Ashanti envoys couldn't decide what to say either, and, speechless, they returned to Kumasi. Knowing of Amatamiya's reputation, Osebonzo had been expecting a response like this, because he broke out into laughter when the envoys repeated back what had happened, and noted that this was the response proper of the Gyaman king's sister. Regardless, it was obvious that war was inevitable. Each side took a year to prepare. Tamiya used her kingdom's vast wealth to raise soldiers not only from her own people, but also numerous mercenaries from the Sahel. Apparently, she also hired a group of bards and singers to entertain the soldiers as they coalesced at the capital. Both sides also invoked the supernatural to aid them in the coming war. Osebonso, inspired by his failures in the First Fonti War, wanted to ensure that the ancestors blessed him with good fortune. Apparently, he rescheduled every single criminal execution to take place on the same day, and became temporarily more punitive in his criminal sentencing to ensure a bigger sacrifice. Meanwhile, Kwajo Adinkra tried to use a pair of rams to predict the future. He brought a pair of rams outside his palace, designated one ram to be named after himself, and the other after Osebonso. He then provoked the rams to fight. The ram he named after himself emerged the victor, making the Gyaman king confident in his coming victory. In 1819, an army of Ashanti soldiers and a supporting cadre of Dagomba mercenaries, combining to an impressive number of 100,000 men, marched on the main road to Bonduku. This was the largest single army ever assembled in Ashanti history. If the Ashanti were expecting an easy victory against the outnumbered 40,000 Gyaman soldiers they faced, such a victory would never arrive. Early in the invasion, Ashanti scouts skirmished with Gamon forces, with neither side emerging as a clear winner. Then one day, on the banks of the River Tyne, the Ashanti force came face to face with their enemy. Adinkra and Tamiya, leading the Gamon army themselves, knew that the Ashanti army was designed to be mobile, its strategy relied on encirclements, and that its ranks outnumbered that of their own soldiers. But having planned ahead, they decided that the Tyne River was the perfect place for them to mount their defense. Most of the river was too deep, and its flow far too strong for the Ashanti to try to cross. The only point of the river that could be realistically crossed was a single narrow stretch of shallow and gentle water, meaning that it would be impossible for the Ashanti's larger army to encircle the Gyaman force. As the Ashanti forward guard advanced through the shallow section of the river, the Gyaman's best soldiers marched forward to meet them. The river's waters ruined any gunpowder the soldiers carried, so fighting immediately devolved into a bloody melee. 
Throughout the bloodbath, Ashanti forces tried to push through the Gyaman center as they slowly waded towards their enemy through the river. With each drive forward, the Ashanti gradually chipped away at the Gyaman lines and advanced in a slow trudge. However, each time the Ashanti seemed close to victory and their forward guard approached the river's edge, the soldiers on the riverbank would pelt them with volleys of gunfire. Ashanti morale would then collapse and the forward guard would retreat, erasing their hard-fought gains in seconds. After two failed attempts, the Contihene realized that he was running low on manpower in the forward guard, and the third crossing attempt would have to succeed, or the battle could be lost altogether. On the third attempt to fight their way to the end of the river, the Ashanti forward guard lurched incredibly close to the riverbank. As they approached the bank, though, again, Yaman soldiers peppered them with bullets. While they continued to advance slowly, it was clearly just a matter of time until their morale shattered. Knowing that his troops needed one last push to break through, the Contihene and his assistant officers leapt into the river to fight alongside their comrades. Allegedly, this show of bravery rejuvenated the Ashanti morale, and the tide of battle was turned. As the Ashanti forward guard reached the other side of the Tyne and established a bridgehead, the rest of the Ashanti army managed to cross the river. Meanwhile, the Gyaman army retreated down the road to the town of Unkoranza. At this town, with no river to halt their advance, the Ashanti could practice the type of fast-paced, encirclement-based warfare they were comfortable with. At Nkoranza, the Gyaman army was thoroughly destroyed. Both Tamiya and Adinkra were killed during the battle. The details of Adinkra's death, while not particularly relevant, are just too unbelievable, gory, and, well, just weird not to share. So, yeah, if you don't like gore, remember my warning from the beginning. Now, there are two versions of events, one told by the Ashanti and the other told by the Bono and Dorma. Both are, uh, strange to say the least. In the Ashanti version of events, the cowardly Kwajo Adinkra tried to flee from his defeat at Nkoranza. But as his army crumbled around him, he knew that the Ashanti would recognize him without a disguise. So, thinking on his feet, he apparently cut off the face of one of his fallen comrades and attempted to wear it as a disguise as he fled. Somehow, the brilliant strategy of wearing bloody human skin as a disguise didn't work, and he was caught almost immediately. The Gyaman king was then brought to Kumasi, where Ose Bonso executed him himself, and kept his skull as a trophy. According to the Gyaman version of events, Adinkro was never captured at all, but chose instead to die honorably by suicide after his defeat. Shortly after his father's suicide, Adinkro's son, while fleeing the battlefield, encountered the corpse of his father. Adinkra's son decided that he didn't want his dad's head to be cut off and taken back as a trophy to Kumasi. So he came up with a brilliant hiding spot. He cut off his dad's head, found the nearby body of a pregnant woman, performed a rudimentary c-section on her corpse, hid his father's head inside her womb, then stitched the woman's corpse back up. Obviously this plan failed. As Ashanti soldiers walked by the scene, one of them noticed a headless body covered in expensive jewelry. Then they saw this poorly stitched up body of a pregnant woman with a face-shaped bulge in her stomach and thought, huh, that's weird. So they unstitched the dead woman and wouldn't you know it, there's a head. The son was captured not long after and confirmed that, yes, this was the head of his father, Kwajo Adinkra. The son was taken back to Kumasi and executed, while despite his son's best efforts, Kwajo Adinkra's head was brought back to Kumasi as a trophy. Yes, that is the official Bono version of events. Yeah, there's been some strange stuff on the show before, but never anything this strange. Anyways, uh, back to normal history land. After their decisive victory at Nkoranza, the Ashanti army went on a rampage throughout Gyaman territories. Multiple towns were wiped off the map entirely, while reportedly 100,000 people, 
almost half the population of the kingdom, were taken into slavery. Valuables from Gyaman's royal palace were melted down into gold and transported back to Ashanti. In the most potent display of Ashanti power, a statuette of a soldier in the Gyaman palace, meant to act as a protective symbol, was melted down and crafted into a bell. This bell was placed on the Ashanti golden stool, so that the king's ancestors could ring it to warn him of impending danger. The message of this campaign of destruction was clear. The victory over Gyaman was so total that not only did it force the Gyaman into a permanent state of submission, it basically ensured that Gyaman would never again be able to challenge the Ashanti. The kingdom would remain a semi-independent Ashanti vassal, but a new pro-Ashanti king was placed as its ruler, and tribute payments were escalated from rare to constant. But most importantly, at least Osebonso, he had defended the honor of his kingdom and his ancestors. Gyaman had paid for their insult to the Golden Stool, and had been reduced to a status of subjugation and ruin. There was no catch this time. Osebonso's goal had been unquestionably achieved and then some. Finally, he could sleep peacefully. And, at least for now, the Ashanti Empire, too, was at peace. This period, the tail end of the rule of Osebonso, will go down in history as the height of Ashanti power and prosperity. So, next episode, we'll take a break from our stories of kings, conquests, reforms, and revolutions to just pause and take a stroll in this empire at its height. Join us next episode as we learn more about what life was like not for the Ashantahanes, but for the average working-class Ashanti subject. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested. This episode was brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including the Caltech Sovereignty Club, Naomi Kanakia, Ayo Fagbamie, Kevin Johnson, Morgan Blackmore, Emmanuel Zaude, Sarah Mpenza, Tobias Tungland, and Dimitri, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really means a lot.